Good afternoon, Lafayette, Acadiana. Thank you very guys. Thank you very much for tuning. I'm sorry. Breaking news has thrown me off again. Thank you very much for tuning in. This is the Joe Cunningham Show. Joe Cunningham here on News Talk 965 KPL. Okay, an hour ago, the current reporting. Uh, former interim Lafayette Police Chief Wayne Griffin is now appealing his termination. So now I believe we have two former chiefs of police who are appealing their terminations here in Lafayette Parish. Uh, so the Acadiana Advocate on Tuesday reported that an appeal was likely. The current is now reporting, or, or the, the uh, Griffin's lawyer is now uh, confirming it. The discipline rendered is without just cause and in bad faith, Attorney Allison Prejean said in a statement to the current. Prejean also said actions undertaken during the sexual harassment investigation as well as the subsequent discipline violated state law, specifically the rights of law enforcement officers while under investigation. She did not detail those alleged violations. So uh, it appears that the uh, the the firing the, they're they're arguing against the reason for the termination, which uh, on Tuesday's advocate piece noted that two unnamed sources confirmed that the fire that the firing was over the the sexual harassment allegations and uh, the. The other part of this appeal is that the investigative process uh, behind the decision or that ultimately led to the firing was also flawed. So that is the the current state of affairs on the continuing saga of the Lafayette Police Department. Uh, uh, former interim police chief Wayne Griffin is now officially appealing his termination as well. Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you guys have had a great week. It is Friday. We've made it. Beautiful, if not chilly, day outside. Going to be a little bit warmer tomorrow. I think we can get up into the lower 60s, but a clear and sunny day. It looks like we will be getting a little bit warmer as the weekend and early next week progress. Getting up to, I think the last forecast forecast I saw said maybe getting close to 70, but another front brings some rain and cooler temperatures again. And by the end of next week, we could be seeing another hard freeze warning according to uh, early reports. Now, with any weather situation, I always live by the 72-hour rule. Don't trust a whole lot outside of that 72 hours. Uh, but, uh, you know, for right now, it's looking like another hard freeze warning could be coming in the near future. I was doing some research for the show today. By the way, if you want to call in 232-1542, I was doing some research today, and I've, I've seen now uh, Louisiana in the, the 2022 legislative session has its first confirmed anti-critical race theory bill. And I have some thoughts. Namely, that nobody involved in this story actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to critical race theory or what this bill may do. Now, this story, uh, the, the story of this was actually reported by, by Greg Hilburn uh, with USA Today Network. Representative Valerie Hodges of Denham Springs, a Republican, has filed Louisiana's first anti-CRT bill of the legislation. I'm thinking of, of the legislative session, sorry, and I think it won't be the only one. Here is Hilburn's story. This week, Denham Springs Republican Val uh, Representative Valerie Hodges became the first to pre-file a bill before the March 15th regular session begins that would require schools to teach race-neutral history. CRT relentlessly focuses on the negative aspects of America's founding and ignores anything good about our history, Hodges said in an interview with the USA Today Network. It's irrational and delusional. 
the left liberals are pushing this crazy ideology that America is bad. Louisiana's Legislative Black Caucus Chairman Vincent Pierre, a Lafayette Democrat, said Hodges' bill and others like it are an attempt to whitewash American history. Pierre said, we're going to stand together as a caucus to keep that type of legislation from coming out of committee, and if if it comes out of committee, we'll stand together on the floor to try to defeat it. Slavery and racism is a thread that weaves its way through American history. How can you ignore its impact, Pierre added. It's unfortunate, but it's part of our history, and if we don't teach it, we're doomed to repeat it. Hodges said her bill won't create historical gaps in history instruction and argues that CRT creates division rather than unity. The text of HB 27 does absolutely nothing that was claimed in the story. Hodges is changing part of Louisiana statute to include some things in 5th to 8th grade education. What she wants to add is stuff, specifically what's added to the statute is Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, Federalist Papers, uh, comparative uh, study of U.S. government versus, say, communism, uh, deeper study into authoritarianism, stuff like that. This is all mentioned in her bill. Nothing she adds isn't already taught in our schools. What her law does is it forces some stuff that is not appropriate for five, for fifth to eighth grade into the content standards. Now, let me explain this a little bit. Louisiana has social studies standards. Each grade level has to meet these standards. And the the standards are basically your child needs to be able to know how to do this, how to read and understand and do this. The, The content is, it's very, very strange that she wants to force stuff like comparative government between, say, communist governments and, and U.S. history and, and, and the United States government into grade levels that don't go beyond Reconstruction. Fifth grade is a study of United States history from the indigenous peoples to uh, through the French and Indian War. Sixth grade social studies, a course I taught, is World Civilizations. And it goes from the earliest of mankind, even pre-hunter-gatherer mankind, to the Renaissance. Very, very broad, by the way. Too broad, in my opinion, but very, very, very broad for sixth grade. That's a whole different story. Seventh grade is U.S. history from just before the uh, post-French and Indian War, just before the Revolution, through Reconstruction. Eighth grade is Louisiana history from European settlement, including some talks about indigenous peoples there too, to the modern era with a unit on uh, natural resources, coastal erosion, things like that. The stuff that Hodges wants to add does not fit in any historical context into any of those areas. Now, I, I am expecting the state to make some changes even into next year, but 
the stuff that Hodges is adding is stuff that's studied either a sophomore or junior year in U.S. history, which is post-Reconstruction to the present. Hodges is just forcing more patriotic-sounding stuff into the curriculum. But noticeably absent from Hodges' legislation is anything that actually addresses race or how race is taught or anything that could be considered race-neutral. We're going to go ahead and take a break, 232-1542. I'm going to go a little bit further into this because I, I need you all to understand that what this bill is is not anything CRT, and the argument surrounding it is just a bunch of noise. We'll talk about that and more when we come back after this break. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965 KPL. If you want to call in, 232-1542. Take part in the conversation at Twitter by finding the username Joe P. Cunningham. You can also find me on Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. All right. When I first when, we, when I first decided we were going to do this show, when I said, yeah, let's have the show, I wanted to avoid CRT as much as possible because it is a very convoluted, very nuanced issue that people on both sides who are pushing or for or arguing against it misrepresent several things. And when we talk about it in education, it's just mind-blowing how much gets missed. Valerie Hodges has filed what she is calling an anti-CRT bill. The only time the bill mentions the word race is toward the end. It is critical to teach students the entire contextual and documented experience of the United States and to use curricula and instructional materials that teach apolitical, fact-based, and race-neutral history. That's the only time the word race is in there. You can pull up the PDF, hit Control-F, type in race, and it's going to find it twice, once in the word embrace and the other in that hyphenated race-based. I'm sorry, race-neutral history. Her bill does not change anything that's already taught, except that it adds things that would actually be taught in high school to probably to, to somewhere between fifth and eighth grade. And the only two course, the only two grade levels currently where that would be featured would be in fifth or seventh grade, but it's beyond the scope of either of those classes. So her bill doesn't actually really address critical race theory at all. Which makes Vincent Pierre's response to the bill pretty baffling. So the fact that it's not in there renders his comments about it. Again, his statement to the USA Today Network was, uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to stand together as a caucus to keep that type of legislation from coming out of committee. And if it comes out of committee, we'll stand together on the floor to try to defeat it. Slavery and racism is a thread that weaves its way throughout American history. How can you ignore its impact? It's unfortunate, but it's part of our history. And if we don't teach it, we're doomed to repeat it. Again, nothing in the bill, which is available publicly, actually whitewashes anything about race from U.S. history. In fact, what kids are taught about U.S. history in school, there's large parts that focus on the issue of slavery, the issue of the treatment of indigenous peoples, the issue, the, the treatment of immigrants from various uh from various parts of the world. It's all addressed in there. Our immigration policy, particularly in the 18 and early 1900s, is a huge focus. 
the issue of slavery, the freedom of slaves, how we treated uh, them during slavery and after slavery, the civil rights movement. All of these things are already taught in our schools. And Hodges' bill doesn't take away from that. In order to change that, by the way, you have to get the, the State Department of Education to change the standards. When a law about standards or anything like that is written, it then goes to the Department of Education, and they have to write and adjust the standards. And they're not going to write those out of history, out of what we're taught in or what our kids are taught in history classrooms. They're not going to do that. Everybody who've, who cried foul about legislation, anti-CRT legislation in Texas and Florida and elsewhere did not read the standards. The left-wing rhetoric about it, oh, they're whitewashing history, ignores the fact that those things were already taught, and they're mandated by Texas law to be taught. Some of those anti-CRT bills actually mandated that these things were taught. Nobody was whitewashing anything. We're so mad about the history that's being taught in the classroom, people left and right can't even read. They don't know what's in the bills. And Hilbert's framing of the story is no better. The point of journalism is to research all the facts. What Hilburn did in this story was talk to Hodges and talk to Pierre and decide, hey, this is a CRT issue. Let's write what they say without looking into what the state teaches, what's actually in the bill, and what impact it might actually have on what the state teaches. The story is clickbait. The statements are just political grandstanding by both sides. Nobody involved in this story actually has any idea what's in the bill or how it would actually affect education. And that's a problem because you have a lot of politicians grandstanding on what's happening in our classrooms without actually knowing what is going on or what would change in our classrooms. This is infuriating. You know the, 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 the saying that's, kind of insulting to teachers, those who can do, those who can't teach. Well, teachers turn it around, those who can teach, those who can't pass laws about teaching. And that's what happens. None of the people involved in this story actually know what's taught in our classroom. Nobody looked at the state standards for education. They looked at the revised statutes because they're politicians. They're going to look at the laws. They're not actually looking at what the State Department of Education has us teaching in our schools and it requires us to have our kids be able to do. Standards are the skills your kids need to know. And the standards say the kid needs to acknowledge this happened in history and this happened in this in history and this happened in history. There continues to be a fundamental misunderstanding of what critical race theory in education actually looks like. A lot of people think it's just something you can throw into a set of standards or a curriculum, and it's not. Critical race theory is a sociological framework. It is a viewpoint. And you can adopt materials that introduce that viewpoint into schools. But more likely, CRT is introduced through the viewpoint of the person teaching the class. And what we see, the true critical race theory stuff that's out there, is pretty scary and divisive. But what's happening is we see 
out of thousands of districts and tens of thousands of schools in our country, we see a few dozen stories that come out from different parts and in many places, very liberal parts of the country about how they try to, how a school is doing this, how a teacher is doing this, how a district's trying to adopt something or other. And we automatically assume it's going to happen to us right now. And it's not. It's Louisiana, Lafayette in particular, but Louisiana in general is not really at risk of this. Even the more liberal parts of the state like New Orleans, you're not going to find true critical race theory measures going through school board policies. We already teach the stuff. If it's introduced, it's going to be from the viewpoint of a teacher who's working in a classroom. But at the same time, while there are extremes on one side that are pushing some very divisive rhetoric about race and systemic racism and all of this, there are people on the other side who are quick to want to ban books. They want to cut back on teaching the seriousness of slavery. They want to cut back on teaching uh, the problematic history of the treatment of, of Native Americans and indigenous people. And the immigration issues, all of these that are rife within our history as a nation. You cannot ignore those things, but some people do. There's no set of state standards that actually omits any of these, though. And none that will. In fact, state standards across the country highlight these things. There have been times when states and curriculum developers have tried But those instances are far in the past, rare, and virtually extinct now. We should be on the lookout for anything that distracts from the true job of education. Anything that stands in the way of teaching students what they actually need to know. Your kid's education is at stake. But it's more about the quality of the schools and the systems than it is the content they're being taught. And that's the key. What happens when they push something that is too far into the critical race theory stuff, too far to the left? What happens? A blue state elects a Republican governor and a Republican lieutenant governor and a Republican attorney general. Legislatures get flipped. School board members suddenly start becoming Republican. 232-1542, we're going to take a bottom-of-the-hour break. When we come back, talk about some national stuff, including Nancy Pelosi shocking everybody when she decided she was going to run for, re- for re-election, all that and more, here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 965 KPL. Welcome back. This is the Joe Cunningham Show. Joe Cunningham in right now, 232-1542, if you want to join in the conversation. And hey, if you missed anything from today's show or previous shows, you can always find us in podcast form, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and there is an app called GoodPod, where if you like to listen to podcasts, including those here from uh, the KPEL studios, you can find all those podcasts on that app as well. You can even follow me personally on there if you find me at Joe P. Cunningham, just like on Twitter, at Joe P. Cunningham. Um, it's an app I'm trying out. It, it's interesting. It's an interesting kind of social network built around podcasters and their followers. So anyway, Good Pods, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find the Joe Cunningham show there. So Nancy Pelosi, I think I mentioned this yesterday when I was filling in on offsides. Nancy Pelosi announced that she is running for re-election for, for Congress. She's not saying anything about her leadership spot. But she did announce yesterday that she's running, for, or was it two days ago? But she is announcing that she's running for re-election. That shocked everybody. 
her original agreement with the squad was that she was stepping down. And everybody understood that to me, not just from leadership, but from uh, from uh, her congressional seat. But she's running again. Nancy Pelosi has been a stellar fundraiser for the Democrats. And early on, she was a pretty good leader. But the Democrats have completely collapsed under her leadership. They are incredibly divided right now. In the House, you have the more centrist acting, because I'm not going to truly say centrist. Well, I'll say I'll use the same term that I use to describe uh, John Roberts, incrementalist. You have incrementalist progressives and you have squad progressives. And the incrementalist progressives want to move the ball down the field slowly. That's Pelosi and her leadership team and the ones that we would say are centrist or moderate types. Then you have the far left progressives, the, the, the folks who want stuff immediately. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, everybody like that. Notice that they have been very quiet since the voting rights thing. The squad, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, they've all been very quiet since the voting rights bill went down. And Nancy Pelosi announced she's running for re-election. And if she's running for re-election, you can guarantee she's going to make a play for that speaker spot again, despite the fact that she vowed that she only, two terms ago that she would only be in there for two more terms. Something's going on in the Democratic Party. The battles between the incrementalist progressives and the far-left progressives is still raging. I think Pelosi could not find a suitable replacement for her in her district. And so she has to run again. Because her fear is that a squad-like Democrat would try to fill the gap there. She's from California. Her district's in California. Very progressive. But she is one of the most powerful figures in California politics. And if she wants her, if she wants that seat, she'll have that seat. The problem is that the squad wants ahead. They want to claim a very big, very powerful head to show that they mean business and that they are a serious group. Because the squad really has nothing to their names right now. They have Instagram stories and, and, and live events. They have tweets and they have some very, uh, some very hot rhetoric. But they don't have anything of substance to show for their time in Congress. And with this re-election cycle coming up and the Democrats' stock dwindling, they need something. So the Democrats are the, the Democratic base is divided into two types of voters. Incrementalist progressives, just like in the House, and the far-left progressives, just like the House. And the far-left progressive voters believe that the problem with the Democratic Party, the reason why they're struggling is that they aren't going far left enough. That everybody would love them if, every, if, their, if their actual true agenda was being pushed. And I know this for a fact because I've talked with several of them. Several of them are friends of mine. But they're also a vocal minority within the Democratic Party. 
the people putting Democrats into power routinely are incrementalist leftists and moderate voters who are tired of the Republicans' crap. And there aren't many in that latter category right now because they're mostly tired of the Democrats' crap. And they're going to keep pushing for the Democrats to stay as middle of the road and maybe drift left a little bit, just like they would join the Republicans and want the Republicans to drift right a little bit, not go for massive increases on on the conservative agenda. But the progressives, the far-left progressives, the squad types want a head. They want a head on a platter, or rather a head on a pike. They want this bloody battle. There's a reason Chuck Schumer is fighting losing battles, battles that he would normally not fight if he you know, had the fortitude to do it, to, to stand up to the squad. He's afraid of them challenging him. There are, I've, I've mentioned this before, there are consistently rumors that AOC is looking to challenge Chuck Schumer in the future for his Senate seat. Truth be told, I don't think she stands a chance. But... He's deathly afraid of that push from his left. So he continues to say and do things that are attempts to appease the left, but really don't do anything except, you know, spend three to four weeks on a voting rights bill that is dead on arrival anyway and expend a ton of political capital on that. Schumer is far weaker than Pelosi. Pelosi can withstand a challenge from them. She's made concessions, but she's kept her, among Democrats, she's kept her dignity for the most part. Schumer has not. And the squad knows they can't fully step up to Nancy Pelosi. The last time they tried, they, Nancy Pelosi gave, the, you know, gave a word-of-mouth agreement that, hey, you know, I'll step down in two terms. And she's running for re-election two terms later, and there's no word from her camp as to whether or not she's going to seek the House speakership again. Or Democratic leadership, because it's very likely, it's extremely likely right now, that the Democrats lose the House. And so she would be a minority leader at best. The Democrats are struggling nationally. And as a result of that, there is a lot of infighting within the Democratic Party, but none of it is truly bubbling up to the surface. We get some of it here and there, but but none of it is truly bubbling up to the surface because the media doesn't want to focus on that. So they're going to continue to push these stories about DeSantis and Trump disliking each other, distrusting each other, attacking each other when it's really not there. I'm, I'm really certain that DeSantis and Trump are very wary of each other right now. But neither is going to publicly say as much because they both know that they can't get to a possible fight between themselves if they divide up the party and lose the midterms. So they're cordial right now. And depending on how this midterm election goes will determine whether or not either of them decides to look ahead to 2024 and think, I got this. The Democrats are struggling. And there's no real indicator that the struggles are going to stop. Just like there's no indicator as to whether or not the Democratic Party as a whole is going to be able to get anything done. Right now, Joe Biden looks like a lame duck president, and it's not even midterms yet. He's a lame duck president who cannot get his agenda passed. Joe Manchin came out and said, 
we're starting over on negotiations about Build Back Better. Manchin wants a piecemeal effort. By the way, good on Manchin because more legislation should be piecemeal. It should not be um, it should not be wholesale legislation that covers everything. I hope that this is really an earnest thing from Manchin because we really need more legislation like that. 232-1542 if you want to call in, be part of the conversation when we come back. Gary Chambers picked up an endorsement from a prominent black Democrat in the state. Has Luke Mixon picked up any? And what is the state of play for the Democrats coming up this year and beyond? We'll talk about that some more when we come back here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk 965 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965 KPL. If you want to join in the conversation, 232-1542. All right, so I want to talk about Gary Chambers and Luke Mixon in the Senate race. So same vein I've been talking about, but... There's an, another twist. From the Associated Press, Jim Mustian, who, fought, by the way, is a fantastic reporter. Louisiana Governor John Bill Edwards, a Democrat in a deep red state, was immersed in a difficult re-election campaign when he received a text message from the head of the state police. Troopers had engaged in a violent, lengthy struggle with a black motorist, ending with the man's death. Edwards was notified of the circumstances of Ronald Green's death within hours of his deadly May 2019 arrest, according to text messages the Associated Press obtained through a public records request. Yet the governor kept quiet as police told a much different story to the victim's family in an official report that Green died from a crash following a high-speed chase. For two years, Edwards remained publicly tight-lipped about the contradictory accounts and a possible cover-up until the AP obtained and published a long-withheld body camera footage showing what really happened. White troopers jolting Green with stun guns, punching him in the face, and dragging him by his ankle shackles as he pleaded for mercy and wailed, I'm your brother. I'm scared. I'm scared. The governor has rebuffed repeated interview requests, and his spokesperson would not say what steps, if any, Edwards took in the immediate aftermath of Green's death. The governor does not direct, direct disciplinary or criminal investigation, said spokesperson Christina Stevens, nor would it be appropriate for him to do so. So this highly publicized death of Ronald Green at the hands of state troopers, white state troopers who brutally assaulted a black man in custody, John Bell Edwards knew and said nothing as state police lied about it for two years. Gary Chambers is a black Democrat running for the U.S. Senate this year against John Kennedy. Recently, he picked up an endorsement from Representative, I think it's Ted Jones, a prominent black Democrat, outgoing representative in from the Baton Rouge area. More black Democrats are going to line up behind Chambers, not just because Chambers is a black candidate, but Chambers touched on one of the most sensitive topics currently out there. The incarceration, particularly of young black men on minor drug offenses and the push for, for decriminalization and legalization appears to be something Chambers will continue to talk about. 
Compare that to Luke Mixon, who got a very mealy-mouthed endorsement from Edwards on his on that weekly radio show or whatever it is he does, where he said, yeah, he kind of reminds me of me. You know, we have similar backgrounds, similar approaches to things. He didn't outright come and endorse Mixon, but he essentially endorsed him and criticized Chambers' ad. Edwards now has the Ronald Green death hanging around his neck. While he was running for re-election, he knew the true uh, cause of Green's death and said nothing. And state police insisted that it was a death caused from a violent crash. In the midst of all the talk we continue to have about white police and black men, how can Edwards possibly retain any black support among the Democrats? Now, granted, he's not up for election again. He's done. But anyone that he endorses, anyone that he supports, now has that same that same millstone around their neck, dragging them down. Edwards hid this. How do you feel about it? Do you then condemn the sitting governor, the guy who's endorsed you? Do you ignore it and not say anything and risk alienating even more black voters who take up 60% of your party's base? Mixon's not raising money. It just the rumors. The rumors are swirling that he is unable to raise any money. There are advisors and, and campaign staffers and all that that come from various prominent Democrats in the state, white Democrats in the state, but they're not able to raise any money. He's not able to get really any traction. The advocates sure gave him a lot of press early on, but even they've been silent on Mixon. Whereas Chambers picks up a key endorsement, and everybody in national media is still talking about Chambers. There are still headlines that pop up about him. The Democrats in the state of Louisiana are in absolute shambles, much in the same way the Democrats nationwide are, but for a different reason. The Democrats in the state of Louisiana have really no way to reconcile their current power structure with the fact that very uh, that, that a prominent and very disgruntled black voter base has seen virtually no change from the party they've sworn their allegiance to. And the Democrats who are in power are not able to hold on to that voting base much longer. Their job will have to be to find moderate black candidates to run. Uh, Sharon Weston Broom of Baton Rouge is, is somebody who could be portrayed as such. And in fact, there was... Rumor swirling she wanted to run for governor as, as Bell Edwards' successor. But after this particular Senate race, Chambers is going to be a player on the scene yet again. He's run for Congress and did surprisingly well. He'll run for Senate and actually pick up a pretty good amount of Democratic voters. Mixon's dead in the water. 
if it comes down to Chambers or Sharon Weston Broom, Chambers will have a foundation for a statewide race already in a Senate race. He will have statewide name recognition. He will get support from out-of-state groups. He will make a pretty good play at governor in 2023. Because he's not gonna he's he's not gonna beat Kennedy in 2022. I'm sorry if you're a Democrat, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Kennedy is going to win 60 to 62 percent of the vote at least in his reelection bid. But Chambers can make a play for governor. And if the Republicans are divided, he could come close. I think the Republicans take it in 2023, assuming that Landry and uh, and the others running for the office don't tear each other apart and leave the just pave the way for Chambers. Thank you guys very much for listening today. Glad to be with you guys every day here on the Joe Cunningham Show. Again, be sure to check us check us out in podcast form. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on social media, Twitter at Joe P Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. Uh, we will be back on Monday at three o'clock once again to talk more about a lot of these issues. And I'm hoping to have a little bit more on the critical race theory issues. Uh, I, I, some folks have reached out on social media already wanting me to, to expand on critical race theory more. It's a subject I've been trying to avoid, but we will have to jump into it at some point. Maybe next week we can do that if there's not a whole lot of breaking news, but we'll see. Thank you guys very much for tuning in and I will talk to you guys after this weekend.